1 Corinthians 13, as we'll soon come to see, is not one to make you necessarily just feel good in the end, but one that's supposed to challenge us to be something better. Every minute, somewhere around the world, there are at least four weddings taking place, and in most of those weddings, these words in chapter 13 are being read aloud. They're being vowed to each other about all the things love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. But all the things love is not. Love is not arrogant. It is not rude. And we quote this, this passage to our future spouse in hopes that they would live up to that in your marriage. You might be surprised to find out that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 actually has nothing to do with romantic love. Now, I'm not saying it's bad for you to use it in weddings as you try to formulate the type of love you want to have in your marriage. But rather than this chapter being all about romantic love, it has everything to do with how Christians treat both those in the church and those outside the church. But why love? Why is love so important? Well, when a lawyer approached Jesus in Matthew 22 and asked him, Jesus, of all the laws that we try to keep intact with, what is the greatest? If you could boil it all down, what would you say the greatest, most important thing is that we did? Jesus obliges in a Jesus fashion and says, okay, love God. And the second is like it, to love others like you love yourself. In fact, the second actually flows from the first, love. It's actually those words from Jesus that remind us of our heightened importance. This is our church website, and this is our mission as a church. We want to help you love God. One way we do that is what we're doing right now. We lift God up in praise. We remember his sacrifice given to us. We, as we talked about with Nicole, we baptize people in his name. Every week, we're trying to help you love God deeper. We help you love other people through church activities, of getting ourselves together as a church body, of our partnerships with local nonprofits and serving our community with our mission efforts. We want to love people. And then the Make Disciples actually comes from the Great Commission where Jesus says, now go therefore and make disciples. And the way that we do that as a church is through our growth track and our Team 210. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll hear more about that in the coming months. But we want to have a strategy for how we make disciples. But two of the three, and the most important thing to Jesus, is love. Love. And so we need to focus, because Jesus said in John chapter 13, he said, you want to know how the world is going to know who my followers are? How they are going to know the people who have dedicated their life to me by how they treat one another, by how they love each other. And so with that being the case, it's absolutely essential for us to understand what is Christian love all about? And you know I'm all about being real and being honest and truthful, so let's just lay out the truth right here at the beginning. If we were to ask anybody on the street who's not involved with the church what they think is the church, what makes up the church, love will probably not be on that list, at least not towards the top. They might say something like, the church is judgmental, the church is narrow-minded. And while we are not 100% responsible for what other people think about us, it would do us really well to focus on what Jesus says is the most important thing. How can we love better? So that's what this morning is going to be about. 
But first, let's do a review to catch us up to this place. We've been working our way through this book of 1 Corinthians, which is actually a letter written to a small congregation in the ancient city of Corinth. It's written by the hand of a beast of an apostle by the name of Paul, who went around this ancient world planting these little Jesus-following groups. After planting this church, Paul was away, and he starts hearing things about what this church is doing, the dysfunction that lives. And this church is probably only three to four years old at the time of receiving this letter. So he is trying to correct them. And he basically can all boil it down to chapter 13 of what the core issue is, is that they don't fully understand the virtue of love, of what it means to love. We saw this just last week. Paul in a very pastoral but corrective way, he tells the, that the body of Christ, which is you, he says the body of Christ is a lot like the physical body. We all are made of different parts, but when we come together, we actually make up a functioning, healthy, effective body. And every single person here plays an important and a necessary part of that body. And that was an important thing for Paul to emphasize because these Corinthians, they had a tendency to elevate themselves over each other. We saw this at the very beginning of this letter. I mean, chapter one, Paul's saying, there's some of you who are elevating yourself based off of who your teacher was. Some of them are like, well, I was taught by Paul, so I'm obviously superior. Well, I was taught by Apollos. Well, and some of them were even weaponizing Jesus, saying, well, we were taught by Jesus, so what we say has to go. They were doing it last week when we talked about spiritual gifts. Some of them were saying, well, my spiritual gift has a heightened importance and is more magnificent than your spiritual gift. So Paul uses the physical body to get across this point. There is no part of the body that can elevate itself over another. You as a, let's say, a foot might feel inferior to a hand. Well, I always stink. I don't look that pretty, and I don't have disposable thumbs. I can't open up soda cans. And if you can do that, I'm really impressed. Some people can. I don't know if any of you have that talent. But it would be easy for the foot to feel inferior to the hand. But Paul is essentially saying, hey, guess what? The hands aren't going anywhere, and they're not doing anything unless the feet take them there. Every part of the body, it matters. So pump your brakes, because that's not the purpose of your gift. The irony is you're using the thing that God has gifted you to bring you together. You're using it to tear yourselves apart. And so Paul ends chapter 12 with this extraordinary sentence. We didn't even touch on it last week. Chapter 12, the very last sentence he says, I want to show you something better. I want to show you a more excellent way. So what is that more excellent way? Well, let's start reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it, read along with us. It's so important to read these words ourselves. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put it up here on the screen for you. Starting in verse 1. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Notice he's pulling off of our spiritual gifts chapter. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul's doing something here. One, 
He is bridging ideas. So we just talked about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. He's taking that conversation, and with this, he's bridging us over to this powerful virtue of love. And he's using himself as an example. He, he does this uh, commonly in his letters, saying, hey, if I could speak with the elegance of the superior intellect of the heavenly realm, but I don't have love, then it's meaningless. It has no value. And in fact, if you allow me to nerd out here for just a second, in this first verse, this idea of a noisy gong. In Greek, it actually translates an echoing bronze, which I know doesn't really help you much from a noisy gong. So I wanted to look it up. What does it mean by an echoing bronze? Actually, what many scholars believe, it's referring to these large bronze vases that would be placed inside the theaters which would have been common here in the city of Corinth. And they placed these large bronze vases so that it actually amplified the actors' voices. It bounced off the bronze and it carried it out to the theater. It's like an ancient microphone. And so Paul is using his surroundings to teach them a point. It's the same with a clanging cymbal. There is actually a cult, many scholars believe that this is referring to, the cult of Cybele, which used bells and cymbals and whistles in their frantic pagan worship. They made a ruckus. And so I took the liberty of just taking this first verse and using that, all that information, and I rephrased it for us, where Paul says, even if you can speak with the heavenly language of angels, but have no love, Your high-toned speech has become like the empty echo of an actor's speech or the noise of frenzied pagan worship. Now, that one's far more forceful (laughs) when you understand the context. Paul is pulling no punches with his readers here. Any gift that is self-directed, that's a problem for Paul. It reminds me of what we talked about in chapter 12, verse 7, that verse that we focused in on. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, what, why? For the common good, meaning we need each other. My name needs to be written on your heart, and your name needs to be written on my heart, because a spiritual gift that's divorced from love always leads to selfish ambitions. Let me give you an example. A gifted communicator divorced from love, becomes a terrible manipulator. A gifted prayer, divorced from love, Jesus talks about this, becomes a prideful actor. A gifted giver, divorced from love, becomes a greedy investor. A gifted faith, divorced from love, just becomes a building block for my own personal kingdom. And that's why Paul says, I want to show you something more excellent. I want to show you a better way. And he's not downplaying spiritual gifts. He's actually strengthening them by saying the motivation of love is what's going to make the Christ body the healthiest, most effective version of itself. Jonathan Edwards, old preacher, 1703 to 1758. That's a long time ago. He says this about spiritual gifts. I couldn't get it out of my head whenever I read it. He says, a spiritual gift of miracles or of speaking, it doesn't change a person's inherent nature. What he's essentially saying is just because you have a spiritual gift, it does not make you sinless. 
In fact, that spiritual gift is actually opened to abuse and misuse if it's not tempered by love. He continues this quote in saying, A gift ability does not require a change of heart, not like love does or holiness does. To say this more practically, an atheist could do my job. You don't need to know God in order to know the author's intent and to convey that to a group of people. Like, I can motivate, I can inspire people around a cause, but if I'm not motivated by love, it is ultimately meaningless. And the same is true for each of us who are here this morning. We have to do more than just go through the motions of our faith, checking off boxes, hoping that it's going to be enough in the end. You know, that was the problem with the Corinthian church. They were playing church, they weren't being the church. It's because they didn't understand the core virtue of Christian love, and I'm afraid many of us don't fully appreciate it either. Part of that is our responsibility and our fault. Part of that is just the English language. I mean, look at the word love and how loosely we can use the word love in our conversation, right? I love tacos. We love our children. Do we really mean the same thing? Some days, yes, but for the most part, for the most part, we need help. We need help with our language, and I'm going to use 1 John chapter 4 to help crystallize what godly love looks like. I want to lay a foundation of what is the, the, the expectation of godly love, and then we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 13, and Paul's going to flush it out for us. But check out what John says about what love is. In this is love. Here it is. You ready? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. A lot of things in that small verse. You want to know what stands out to me first off is that God initiates the love. Love initiates. It's like the first thing we learn in a healthy relationship. Love always initiates. It doesn't wait for somebody else to initiate it. It takes the first step, and God took the first step when it came to us and our salvation. We weren't looking for a savior. We were blindly walking around in our sin, and God sent his son to save us because love initiates. Another thing I learn here is love requires sacrifice. I've been married to Darian for seven and a half years, which for many in this room is not much at all. By the world standards, it's actually a lot, but for many of us, it doesn't mean anything, but for me, it means the world. Seven and a half years, and I love Darian more now than I did seven and a half years ago. Why? Because I can look back at a relationship of sacrifice, of all the times Darian has sacrificed something for me, has sacrificed for our relationship, has sacrificed for our family. And the greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. Listen, I love this church. I love everybody in this room. I hope my time with you, it has shown you that I love you. But I wouldn't give my son Arlo, I wouldn't sacrifice him for anybody in this room. I don't love you that much. But God does. And God did. Jesus died for the propitiation of our sins. It's a big fancy word. It simply means the payment. Because our sins, they cost something. They always cost something. And every man, woman, and child has entered the world racking up charges. And that corruption, it just lives inside of us. 
It's like we're born with it, and over time it grows and it festers. Just as we get older, we get really good at masking it up, but it's still there, and it's still alive, and the wages of our sin, Scripture says, is death. That's how serious this thing is. And because God is both perfectly holy and perfectly just, and those attributes of God live in harmony with each other, it's not either or at any moment, God can't just turn a blind eye to what our sin costs the world. If he did, he wouldn't be a holy and just God. He would just allow us to live within the corruption of our own deceit. So the payment fell on Jesus. And here's what I've come to believe with all my heart. You'll never fully appreciate your salvation unless you know what you're being saved from. And I'll be the first to admit, we don't, I don't fully understand what hell is, but it doesn't mean I can ignore it. And I don't know what your definition of hell is. Let me try to give you an easy understanding of it because church history hasn't done a very good job with it for us. You have to get like pitchforks and molten lava out of your head and just simply walk away with this definition. Hell is simply the absence of God. And everything good that you experience in this life, it radiates from God's presence and you'll be without it. Now, we're not going to shy away from the topic of hell. We'll actually talk about it with a tear in our eye because we recognize the reality of our sin and the weight that Jesus has shouldered for us. So let me put all this together. Love, it sees a need, it meets a need, even if that need requires a great sacrifice. And it's within that sphere that our spiritual gifts have to operate in order to be at their purest And it's not the gift, the action, even the sacrifice itself that is most important. You would think like martyrdom, dying for our devotion for Jesus would be the ultimate sign of our devotion to him, but it's not. I mean, look again at verse 3, what Paul says, I could deliver up my body to be burned, but if I don't have what? If I don't have love, it's not worth anything. Love, it's the quintessential virtue that we have to get right. We have to. So what is love? First, John 4 laid out a foundation. Let's hear what Paul has to say about love. Picking up back in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Spend a moment looking at this list for you, your life, your morning this morning. Where do you lack? Which one is yours? Which, which piece is missing? Maybe you get caught up on that very first one, love is patient, and you're thinking, do I, do I really lo- walk along at somebody else's pace, or am I just like forcing it, forcing them to catch up? That could be like practically, like I just like I walk faster than everybody else, or that could be like with ideas. Just, just, if you could just get where I'm at, we would be good. Is your time more valuable than other people's time? Or how about envy? There it is. How about envy? Jealousy. You know, this is one of those that we often downplay, jealousy. It's like, ah, 
You know, if you could be anything on this list, at least you're just jealous, right? Like we can downplay, that one's easy for us to grapple. In fact, jealousy, it can just motivate you to be better, right? I think we do a disservice by downplaying it though, because jealousy is what brought Jesus to the cross and caused Satan to fall. So it's a pretty big deal in the biblical story. It should be a pretty big deal for us as well. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's rudeness. You know, this one is one of my pet peeves. I I can't stand people who are rude, and for seemingly no reason. It's like, why can't we all just have some joy in our heart? But you want to know what they say about pet peeves? It's often the thing that we hate most about ourselves. And so I'm really wrestling with that one this morning. (laughs) How about insisting on its own way? You know, we live in a world in which demanding one's right is now considered a virtue. So we need to revisit that one over and over again. Or how about this one, rejoicing at wrongdoing? You know, this one seems like it should be the most distant from us. Like, okay, I, got, I, I may struggle with all the other ones, but rejoicing in wrongdoing, I don't rejoice in wrongdoing. I got that one down stat. But you think about it a little bit, and you realize it's a lot closer to home than you're comfortable with. How many of us, we root for characters in movies, or we vote for political candidates whose character often doesn't reflect that of Jesus's? And you look at this list, I don't know where you are on it, but let me bridge something for you. We've been talking about who is Jesus. One of the coolest things you can do in this passage is just simply replace love with Jesus' name. It's going to give you a clear picture. Well, Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never ends. Many of you want me to end here, maybe because of time, maybe because it's like, man, I feel good. That, that's what I needed this morning. But the point of 1 Corinthians 13 is not for us necessarily to walk away. It's to walk away being transformed into something different. That was the purpose of this in its original context. Paul is giving this list to the Corinthians to show them what they are not being. So every time they read one of the things off this list, they're being struck by each one because it reflects the kind of love where they are lacking. So we should do something similar. Where am I lacking? What is Jesus, and where do I need Jesus? Because I lack it there. Paul's going to close out 1 Corinthians 13 for us. Chapter, or verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. You know, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now in part, I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul's saying here, you think your gifts make you mature, but a day is going to come when your gifts are going to cease. We talked a little bit about this last week. The question is, when do our gifts cease to have power and exist? Well, Paul answers that question. He says, when the perfect comes, which opens us up to the large theological debate of when will the perfect come? 
What is that perfect? How does Paul define it? And so I want to quickly give you two schools of thought. And you may be sitting in one of them, or you may just be happy to be here, and that's okay too. Thought number one, some believers think that the perfect refers to the completion of the Bible and the maturity of the church. Now that we have the canon, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, there's no need for spiritual gifts to operate. They pick that up with the analogy that Paul uses here of childlike character. When I was a child, I did childish things, I act in childish ways, but now that I've matured, I've done away with my childish ways. Personally, I am hesitant to say that God no longer works supernaturally through his people or through their spiritual gifts just because I have not personally encountered it. That's me, though. Thought number two, the perfect refers to the return of Jesus, who has not yet come into fruition. Support of that idea, if you look just here, is the idea that we will see Jesus face to face, that we don't know entirely now, but we will come to know and be fully known. And listen, I'm not sure where you land between those two thoughts. I don't mind sharing with you after service where I am between those two schools of thought. But I think the beauty of our First Corinthians series is this. There have been multiple occasions in this series where we have come to a crossroad of belief, and we've been able to navigate them in them and through them as a unified church. And I think that's large in part because we haven't lost sight of what Paul says in that last sentence. We haven't lost sight that now, so now as faith, hope, and love, they abide, but the greatest of these is love. What does that mean? Like, isn't faith and hope important? Why is love superior to these other two things? Let me explain it this way. What is faith? Faith is trust, if you're to give it another word. And what do we as Christians, we trust in? We trust that when Jesus returns, he's going to raise us from the dead. One day, that faith is no longer going to be necessary because it's going to come to completion. We will no longer have to trust that this will happen because it will have already happened. The same is true with hope. What is the greatest hope that Christians have? That one day we will meet God face to face and we will be able to live with him for eternity. One day that hope will be fulfilled. We will no longer hope for that thing because we'll be living within its reality. But what is the one thing that we will be doing for all eternity? We will be loving each other. We will be loving God. Faith, hope, and love. But earlier Paul said, love never ends. It never ends. Our faith will one day come to completion. The same is true for our hope, but we will be loving for eternity. So it's essential that we get it right now. That we work on it now. That it's our focus now. So by summary, quickly, number one, love is the ground of meaning. Verses one through three emphasize that even the most apparently spiritual and magnificent activities become without love meaningless. <laughs> First Corinthians 13, it, also, it ought to encourage you that anytime you're in the midst of a cherished project to step back and ask the question, why am I doing this? And if the answer is not because I love, then you have to take into serious question the whole enterprise of why you're doing it. Take it into serious doubt. And that doesn't just apply to our religious practices. That's true in business. That's true in politics. That's true in academia. 
Why am I doing this? And if the ground base meaning isn't love, we bring it into question. Number two, love requires the formation of character. Love is not just a matter of feelings. Feelings come and go. But Paul says love abides. And Paul's description of these attributes of love in verses four through seven, it paints this picture of habitual actions, of something that is embedded inside of us. We can't just decide one day, you know what, today I'm going to live like 1 Corinthians 13. For the rest of my life, this is who I'm going to be. But rather, it has to be something that is learned and cultivated over time within a context of a community that values it as well. We have to learn to be patient. We have to be taught not to keep score of the wrongs done against us. And Paul suggests that the, the church should be the school for the cultivation of this type of love. And then finally, number three, all of our knowledge is partial. The force of verses 8 through 13, it encourages us to have a sense of humor and a sense of humility when it comes to even our greatest convictions and activities. When the perfect comes, whatever you think the perfect is, when God judges the secrets of the human heart, when we see this life from the other side of the resurrection, what we're going to discover is that even the things that seem the most glorious and exalted to us, be it tongues or be it technology, are going to look like child's play. Because it is only love that will not be rendered obsolete in the end. So don't hold so tightly to what you think you know. Any of us. Here's what we need to walk away with. Not everybody in our community is going to agree with us. We live by standards that the world mocks, that the world criticizes. And honestly, I don't care what, if I seem right or if I look right in the world's eyes. But here's what I do care about. I want this church to be a light in our community. I want this church to be known for our love. So when people down the road they might say something like, you know, I don't agree with everything those Christians down the road believe. But man, I do wish there were more of them. And if any church could bring those words to somebody's lips, I think this church has a real chance to. So this week, don't forget to love. It's the most important thing you'll do all week.